Well, hey, I, uh, I hope you had a chance maybe to spend some time reading through chapter 24 this week. And if you have your own Bible with you, you might want to go to Mark chapter 1. Uh, you can do the story chapter 24 or Mark chapter 1 if you use something like version on your smartphone. Uh, we won't think you're texting or doing anything like that if you need to get your, uh, your phone out. But uh, as you're going there, um, I just want to take a moment to say, hey, it is great to be here with you today. And I'm really excited uh, for this opportunity to share with you. I do want to say right up front, because I know that word's going to quickly spread today that Steve and I did run in the same trail race last night, and it was a five-mile race out at Katiwi Park, and he beat me by about 45 seconds, which isn't unusual. It typically goes that way, but he did win, and uh, well, um, I I just want to say, too, I'm really uh, grateful for Steve and his leadership as our Carmel campus pastor and this team here. We've got a great staff team uh, serving in Carmel, and for all of you as well, um, I want to say thank you uh, for your leadership, for your faith, the way that you keep working and inviting and serving in some great ways, starting this second service now on Sunday mornings, and uh, keep up the work, keep up the faith. Uh, You're doing some great things and just really proud of what's happening here. Hey, if you have been following along with us, uh, if you were here last week, the last couple of weeks, if you've been reading on your own, uh, you know that we're in the New Testament. Uh, We're looking at the life of Jesus Christ, and over the past couple of weeks, we've talked about his birth. Uh, Last week, we spent a little time talking about the beginning of his ministry and just really pointing pointing out that at the very beginning of that ministry, uh, Jesus was baptized. And what we find, what we have found is that, you know, there is and will never be anyone like Jesus. Um, He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was present at creation. Uh, He was born of a virgin. He's the one the Old Testament prophets talked about uh, for so many years before his birth. Uh, He he spoke to people uh, with amazing words. He he walked on water and performed incredible miracles. And and what he did is he showed us what it means to love God and and to love people. And, And he modeled this perfect love for his father and for people in everything that he did. I mean, in the greatest example of that love was when he died on the cross Uh, for your sins and my sins, and he defeated death uh, three days later with his resurrection. And because he did, uh, he offers us a hope and a perspective uh, that goes beyond anything uh, that you can ever possibly imagine. Um, Today, I want to help you understand a little bit more why Jesus is no ordinary man. He's no ordinary Savior. And for those of you that might be new to church, Uh, For those of you that maybe you would say, I'm new to Christianity, uh, new to this conversation of sorts on Jesus, Um, I'm praying today, I'm hoping today that maybe uh, even this time here this morning will help you a little more as you try and better understand who Jesus is. And, um, And I hope today, and I'm praying today, that as you learn a little more about him, um, that you'll just see for yourself that when you meet him, and when you encounter him, and when you invite him into your life and allow him to change things, he, he's not going to just mark your life for a few days, but he can change your life forever uh, so that you will never again be the same. And so uh, today we're going to take a closer look um, at who I believe is the most extraordinary person uh, that ever walked on this earth, a man people are still talking about 2,000 years later uh, after his time on this earth. And uh, so let's do that together uh, and just kind of ask, what is it that we know? What is it that we can see even in these uh, early, or not early years of Jesus' life, but in these first few chapters of the New Testament uh, uh, in this story, what do we discover about him? If you're taking notes and you want to follow along, the first thing that we notice about him is that Jesus was an extraordinary teacher. I mean, he really was. 
and uh, his teaching was so different uh, than anything that people had ever heard before. He had uh, challenging words for others. His, his words, his messages were very captivating. He, uh, he taught using humor and poetry and illustrations, and he used God's Word and from the Old Testament, and he and interpreted it in ways uh, that many people had never heard. And because of that, the crowds would just flock to him. Uh, They would just come in large numbers, and they quickly discovered that Jesus was no ordinary teacher. Now, if you read through the story this past week, uh, you read a portion of one of Jesus' more famous teachings in all of the Bible, and it's a teaching we call the Sermon on the Mount, uh, found in Matthew 5 through 7, um, a teaching that Jesus gave on the side of a mountain. And some people believe that, you know, potentially thousands of people came and sat that day and listened to Jesus teach. And, and what's interesting is that he didn't have a microphone uh, because he didn't need one. And it wasn't because he, you know, had a really loud voice or anything like that. But many people believe that he chose this portion of the mountain because it served really as a natural amphitheater of sorts. Now, um, the Sermon on the Mount is the longest recorded sermon that we have of Jesus' teaching that has been written down. I mean, you might be surprised to find that this sermon is even longer than most of Steve Wallen's sermons, you know. And uh, I, I know he's going to call me out on that. He's going to go to iTunes and say, hey, look at the minutes. You're preaching a lot longer than I am. But here's what one professor uh, said about this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave, and I just think this is so good. He says, in it, we have the epitome of Jesus' teaching, radical, sensible, spiritual, and almost vicious in its demolition of hypocrisy. Um, If you read Matthew 5 through 7, if you're familiar with that sermon at all, you know that's a really good description of Jesus' words and teaching. And you might have also felt some of those things as you read. I mean, I mean, Jesus, when he taught, I mean, some of what he said came across as upside down or even a little backwards. I mean, he said things like, blessed are the poor, you know, and blessed are those who are persecuted. I mean, do those, you know, at first glance, do those things sound like blessings to you? No, probably not. But, but you know, why would Jesus teach something like that? Well, it's because he looked at things differently uh, than the way that we do. And while we have a tendency to focus on the moment at hand and those things going on around us, you know, in the present, Jesus in his teaching was always pulling that focus upward. He was always looking at what was to come to the peace that would be given and the hope that would be available. I mean, he was talking about what it means and the importance of having a relationship with the Father and all of the eternal rewards that come with that. And Jesus taught about these things all the time over and over again. Uh, He taught about these things using parables. Uh, Now, if you remember from your Sunday school days, my Sunday school teacher used to remind us that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Um, A parable is a a, a story with purpose, uh, a made-up story, but a very believable story, a story that was told with some punch. Uh, Again, it was moving people towards application. And and with parables, Jesus would share these stories, and then he'd explain them, but just not for the sake of knowledge, but he was moving them, and he was encouraging them to apply these things to their life. Um, You know, chances are, you know, even if you're new to church, you've heard some of these parables, or you've heard some of these parables referred to when you think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, or the parable of the prodigal son, and and what did people think, you know, then of these stories and others? Well, in Mark chapter 1, verse 27, here's how people so regularly responded to Jesus' teaching. The Bible says that the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching. And with authority, I mean, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. I mean, notice that word amazed, right? That word amazed, I mean, it means um, to be moved with fear, 
uh, alarmed, you know, just absolutely astonished. I mean, that word amazed appears 30 times in the Gospels. Now, three times it's used to describe Jesus' amazement at something, but the other 27 times are used to describe the people's reactions to something that Jesus was teaching. I mean, they were amazed at his miracles. They were amazed. They were astonished at the way that people responded. And why? Because Jesus was the most extraordinary teacher that ever lived. And people would come and they would listen to him for hours and they would walk miles and miles to hear him. And they were so drawn to his teaching. And there was good reason for this. You know, in uh, Scripture, we often hear Jesus referred to as rabbi. Now, that word rabbi just simply means teacher or more specifically a teacher of the Jewish law. And in Jesus' day, um, every rabbi would have his own teaching. He would have his own interpretation or understanding of the Old Testament law. And so for every Old Testament rabbi, uh, what he would do is he would seek to promote his own beliefs among his followers uh, so that they would follow him, so that they would embrace him and then teach it. On to other people. Well, back then, uh, the rabbi's interpretation of the Old Testament was called his yoke. Now, when I say yoke, I don't mean yolk uh, or however you'd pronounce whatever's inside of an egg. I mean, we're talking yoke, it's Y O K E. And so um, he would refer to his teaching or his platform as this yoke. And so when you followed a certain rabbi, you were placing yourself under that teacher's yoke. Uh, So that when you hear the word yoke, again, I just want you to think of a person's philosophy or, again, their teachings or their perspective. It's what they, it's what the rabbis wanted the others to embrace. And so take the Sabbath, uh, for instance, the, the topic of the Sabbath. We know that the Sabbath is supposed to be a day of rest. Now, no work. All right, just a day of rest. Well, the rabbis of the past would come up with their lists of those things that were permissible, those things were allowed or not allowed on the Sabbath. And every rabbi had a different interpretation of the text. Now, some might say that you could only walk inside of your house on the Sabbath. And uh, by comparison, that would mean that you couldn't walk to the store uh, because that would be seen as something like work. And so uh, some rabbis would say that you could be outside and you could be walking, but you could only walk a certain distance on the Sabbath. And so every rabbi had their own limits. Uh, even in talking about matters like physical intimacy, you know, with, with, with a man and woman uh, spouse, you know, I mean, some rabbis would say, no, you can't do that on the Sabbath. Uh, that's work. Um, other rabbis would say, hey, why once? How about twice, you know, on the Sabbath? And I know that some of you men are probably hoping I take a strong stance on this position, but I'm just going to leave it alone. Um, but, but when you think about the Sabbath, look at it like this. How, how many of you, I never have, but how many of you have uh, ever been to Israel before? A- anybody here ever traveled to Israel? We've got one over here. Um, well, if you go to Israel, I've heard, maybe you see, saw for yourself, Gary, that uh, in some of the large buildings and hotels, especially in the city, uh, they have what are called Sabbath elevators, believe it or not. And we've got a picture here. It's a little bit difficult to read. Um, but the idea is that you don't have to push a button uh, in the Sabbath elevator on the Sabbath because that would be seen as work. And so the Sabbath elevators are programmed to stop at every single floor on a particular building. Uh, it helps you get to where you need to go without working, without pushing a button. And I just got to thinking to myself, you know, that some of these elevators probably have elevator operators that look a lot like uh, this guy right here, Uh, if you remember Buddy the Elf and pushing all the elevator buttons. But uh, no, seriously, now, these rules, uh, these teachings on the Sabbath, they all stem from the yoke of the rabbi. 
And so somewhere along the way, some rabbi said, you know what, you can't push elevator buttons. Uh, You just can't do that on the Sabbath. That was his interpretation of the Old Testament law. Well, when Jesus came on the scene, obviously, of course, there were no elevators, but there were plenty of rabbis teaching, and Jesus offered his own very interesting invitation in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, when he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mean, what's Jesus the rabbi saying? He's saying, hey, I'm different than all of the others. Um, And because the other rabbis just offered these endless rules to live by rules like, you know, do this or don't do that or you walk too far today or you push that button, I mean, it was their yoke. But Jesus says, my yoke is about rest, and it's about setting people free. And I'm not about increasing your burden. I'm about lightening your burden. And it didn't take long before they realized that Jesus was no ordinary teacher, and his words were radical, and the people were amazed and drawn to him. He truly was an extraordinary teacher. But he was more than that. I mean, not only was he a teacher, but in your notes, Jesus was an extraordinary king. I mean, in the Old New Testament, uh, it was the wise men, if you remember from the Christmas story, that were the first to refer to Jesus as king. And again, they did this when he was still an infant. In Matthew 2, the, they asked the question, the wise men did, where is this one who has been born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. Now, think about how they called Jesus king was he, when he was an infant. And fast forward, if you would, uh, to his death on the cross. And what was the sign they placed over Jesus' head? What did it say? This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And they meant it sarcastically, of course, and they meant it as a way of humiliating him, but it was the truth. I mean, he truly was the king. And they mocked Jesus with that title on the cross because when you think about kings and kingdoms, you probably think about words like power and authority. And Jesus certainly encapsulated all of these things, but not in the way that we tend to think of them. I mean, we think of these things in physical, earthly terms, but Jesus is a king who is unlike Uh, any other king before him. And his kingdom isn't an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly spiritual kingdom. I mean, no king would run his kingdom like Jesus did. I mean, he accepted outsiders. I mean, what kind of king does that? I mean, he embraced the sick and the weak and the broken. I mean, no king would do that, but Jesus did. And Jesus associated not with the powerful and the popular, but the least and the outcast. I mean, he was no ordinary king, and his was no ordinary kingdom. And and he often taught about the uh, kingdom of heaven, saying, you know, the kingdom of God is like this, or the kingdom of heaven will be like that. And, And time after time, Jesus told stories that described this kingdom and how it was going to be. And one day he taught that this long awaited kingdom of God had finally come in Luke chapter 4. Verse 18, when he's pointing to himself and he uses this prophecy from the past, he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus followed it up and he makes this statement before all the people and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, you read through the Gospels, he said those words over and over again. He used that word fulfilled. And Jesus says, today, these words are fulfilled in your present. You know, Jesus was a king with a spiritual mission. 
He came to set the captives free, and this freedom was available to the poor and the weak. Uh, he made it available to the sinners. Uh, it was available to the Gentiles or to those who weren't Jewish. I mean, he was a king with a mission and a mission that would cost him absolutely everything. <clears throat> the late Chuck Colson uh, once pointed out that there have been hundreds uh, of presidents and kings over the years, and in times of war, uh, all of these kings and presidents have done the very same thing. That is, they have asked their subjects to go out and lay down their lives for their country. But you know, there is only one king who went out and laid down his life for his subjects. It's King Jesus. And not only did he teach about freedom for all, but with his life, he paid the ransom to make that freedom possible and available to all those who would call him Lord. I mean, Jesus Christ, he is an extraordinary teacher, nothing less than an extraordinary king. And finally, he was also an extraordinary man. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Now, when you hear something like that, it doesn't mean that he was 50% God and 50% man. No, he was 100% divine and 100% human at the same time. And, and I don't think we can talk about something like that without landing on Philippians uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 6, where the Apostle Paul urges uh, people like you and me uh, to have the same mindset and attitude and actions of Jesus when he points out in Philippians 2, starting in verse 6, who, and he's talking about Jesus, being in very nature God, again, because he's 100% God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, again, 100% divine, 100% human at the same time, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I mean, can you see? I mean, you see it for yourself, the fullness of both Jesus' divinity and humanity in those verses. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. Now, let's just do this. Let's just consider for a moment the significance of his humanity. Um, It was God's plan. God's plan, you know, from the very beginning that his son Jesus would enter this world through a woman, uh, through human birth. And the Bible tells us uh, that Jesus experienced things, I mean, much like those things that we experience. He experienced hunger and, and thirst. Uh, we read stories about how he experienced joy in his life and sorrow. He, he became tired and slept. He, he bled and died. I mean, he experienced all those things that would make him fully human. I mean, he was God in the flesh. And that's important. All right, that's important for us to remember because sometimes we look at Jesus in the flesh as this robotic deity of sorts. I mean, that he was just simply programmed with this mission, like that in his humanity, his, he was only, you know, his skin was only like an inch deep or something. And so we tell ourselves, well, that's why he never sinned. I mean, he, you know, I mean, he was God in the flesh, but he was incapable of sinning. I mean, he's got these superpowers, you know, working to his advantage. But consider this. I mean, think about the story, if you would. We'll look at it in a couple of weeks of, uh, of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, the night before Jesus' death. I mean, if Jesus were anything less than human, I mean, would he have wrestled with whether or not to go to the cross and face such a cruel death and punishment? And he certainly wouldn't have been in so much anguish over it. I mean, as the Bible tells us that on that night, he sweat drops of blood. 
And not only that, but he prayed and he pleaded with his father and he asked his God, you know, is there any other way? And if there is any other way, take this cup from me. And if it's possible, spare me from this terrible death. But even in those words and even in that pleading, he said, but Father, not my will, but your will be done. And I just want you to see and notice for yourself that he was no robotic deity. I mean, even the writer of Hebrews uh, in chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest, he's talking about Jesus here, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet what was different about him? He did not sin. I mean, what Jesus did for us is he came, he showed us what would happen for a person, for a man to walk in perfect step with the Holy Spirit, Spirit, completely obedient, sold out to the Father. And to do that, what he would do from time to time is he would pull away from everyone else so that he could be alone and simply hear from his Father. And well, we might think in our minds, well, you know, I mean, why did he need to do that? I mean, he's God. I mean, why did he need to spend time with the Father? That's yeah, true, but because he came in human form, with all of his humanity, he desired that connection and that relationship with his father. I mean, Jesus loved his father. I mean, that was the priority. And what he did for us is he set us an example of why that relationship is so important. Hey, can I just, can I just take a moment here and just remind you of the importance of your relationship with the father because of Jesus Christ? I mean, that Jesus Christ made that possible. I mean, I was I was reminded of that myself uh, just a little over a week ago. I mean, I scheduled one day out of the office and just spent an entire day at a local retreat center, and I just took a couple hours in the morning, and I walked outside, you know, just taking advantage of a prayer walk and spending a time alone with the Lord. And, man, I don't know about you, but I get so distracted. I mean, I get so caught up in the things that are going around me in my life with work and with family and just all of the circumstances that I get so distracted and it's just so easy for me to neglect my relationship with Jesus Christ and, and it's easy to take advantage of that relationship with the Lord and man, it just took one day and it just took a few hours to be reminded of how important that relationship is. Hey, you need to know this. Um, Christianity is so much more than going to church on Sundays. I mean, it's so much more than that. It's so much more than coming here on Sundays and then coming back again next week. As important as that is, Christianity is about a relationship with the Father. And Jesus Christ makes that relationship possible. And, And I need to hear from Jesus. And you need to hear from Jesus. And Jesus was in constant connection with his Father. And if we're gonna live our lives obediently and if we're gonna live our lives to glorify him on this earth and to bring praise to his name, we need that continual connection, that relationship with our Father too. And so that's just a little bit, real briefly, about his humanity. But quickly, what about his divinity? Well, think about some of the statements that Jesus made along the way. I mean, he said things like, I mean, if any man has seen me, he has seen the Father. No ordinary man could claim that. You know, no sensible man could claim something like that. And not only did he make statements like this one, but he followed those statements with some pretty amazing miracles too. I mean, the Bible tells us about 34 specific miracles in the Gospels. And then there are another 15 occasions in the Gospels where we know some general details about different miracles that Jesus performed. I mean, there is and never has been anyone like him. I mean, he turned water into wine. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. Uh, He walked on water. That's not ordinary. I mean, there's nothing ordinary about him. He was 100% God and 100% man. And if you're like me, you might hear something like that and say, you know what, Um, that math doesn't add up. (laughs) 
Like I'm having a difficult time processing that. Well, let me just tell you that with Jesus, I mean, just get used to the math not adding up. I mean, it usually doesn't. And I think what we're going to find is that's a good thing. You know, um, there's a miracle in each of the four Gospels. Um, Flip over, if you would, to Matthew chapter 14. I want to look at this uh, before we wrap up here. Um, This miracle that I want to look at for just a moment uh, is often referred to as the feeding of the 5,000, but it's worth noting that most scholars believe that there were more than 5,000 present on this particular day because in this particular culture, uh, whenever it came to doing a count, uh, they would only count men. That's not true here at Genesis. We'll, we'll count everybody, all right? Anything that moves, all right? We count every person and even count them twice if you need to. Uh, but in this particular situation, even though there were 5,000 present, and we know that to be 5,000 men, if you add to that likely women and children in attendance, some scholars estimate that as many as 15,000 people were present for this particular event. And they all came because they wanted to hear from Jesus. They wanted to hear about his teaching. And some came for healing. And others just simply came to catch a glimpse of the man everyone was talking about. Uh, Dave Stone uh, referred to the crowd like this. He said it's a, it was made up of a multitude of misery and sickness, people bringing nothing but request to Jesus. And, and what did Jesus do? He treated every one of them with kindness. He showed compassion. He spent time with each of them. But here's the problem. The disciples didn't share the same compassion that Jesus had on this particular day. And they were, they were tired. Uh, it had been a long couple of days. I mean, they've missed lunch, dinner, maybe breakfast, whatever that be. And so in Matthew 14, uh, verse 15, let, let's just look at a couple of these verses here. It says, as evening approach, that with, again, with all of this crowd, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to their villages and buy themselves some food. Now, This is interesting because usually the disciples address Jesus with a very respectful Lord. And oftentimes, Lord, Lord is what it said, but not this time. In fact, if we were to understand this particular dialogue in the original language, what they're doing for Jesus is they're issuing a command of him. They're making a very bold statement. It's like they're saying, hey, Jesus, send these people home. We're not responsible for them. Let let them go home. Let them go find their own food and take care of themselves But notice that Jesus didn't get bent out of shape um, by their lack of disrespect or lack of compassion because he's greater than that. But he does give them an assignment. Verse 16 says, Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And so the disciples respond. My guess is probably a little reluctantly, probably like your kids sometimes when you tell them to go clean their room, they stomp away and maybe mouth some words along the way. That's what the disciples are doing. And They kind of wander out into the crowd and they just start doing a food inventory. I mean, who brought something? Can we, you know, do a little pitch in or a potluck here or something? And what they found was that no one intended to stay that long. I mean, no one brought a lunch. And and so they came back to Jesus with the report in verse 17. They said, hey, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, if you would, I want you to notice that word only. And you have to emphasize it a little bit to really hear the heart of what they're saying. You know, they are... only have, as if to say, a nice try, Jesus, but we find ourselves in a pretty impossible situation. And here is the situation. I mean, we've got a crowd, a crowd of 15,000. We've got one boy's lunch. And just to give you some perspective, um, here's a picture of uh, Klipsch Music Center over in Noblesville. And they estimate that with the lawn seating and everything, that on a big night, something like 18,000 people 
uh, might come out. And so if we're talking about potentially 15,000, give or take, uh, maybe here's a little bit of a, just kind of an idea of what they're up against in this moment. And, and uh, how many people in the crowd are going to be satisfied with a meal, a shared meal of five loaves of bread and two fish. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, unless you're somebody like Philip. I mean, Philip's the accountant in the group. He's the math guy uh, in this particular group. And, um, well, I I, I celebrated a birthday a little over a week ago, and I've got three kids, and uh, they each made a birthday card for me. And it's interesting if you're a parent and if you've got more than one kid to see some of the similarities in those kids, but also the differences uh, in your kids. And so I've got a five-year-old, Kate, and uh, she made this card for me, and it just uh, simply says, I love you, uh, D, uh, and then all of this XOXOXO, and that just really represents her well because she loves to cuddle and she loves to give kisses and, and hugs uh, to her dad. And then I have a seven-year-old son, Luke, and uh, Luke's kind of like resident artist in our house, and uh, so so his pictures are always full of the best of colors and art. And it says on there, to the best dad. How about that? The best dad, you know, he calls me. And all of his artwork on the inside. But here's my son, Joel. Now, Joel's 10 years old. And I want you to see if you can notice anything unique about Joel and what he loves. Uh, he writes on the front of this card, happy birthday. You are as old as, and I know that you can't read this. I'll read it for you. But he says, 6 times 8 minus 10 plus 2 minus 20 plus 15 times 2 minus 32 years. Uh, you are also the world's best dad from jelly minus Ellie plus O plus E plus L and other other words, Joel. Uh, if you weren't able to do that math, it adds up to 38. But Joel is the mathematician uh, in our house. He, he, he didn't get it from me. I, I promise you that. He got that from my wife. But he loves math, and, and so did Philip. Uh, Philip loved math. Again, he was the math guy. And in John's gospel, uh, Philip goes on the record as saying, hey, it would take over six months of wages to feed everyone. And isn't there just always somebody like that in every group that's always doing the math, that always has a stat? And, And that's Philip. And the math isn't worth exploring, really, in this particular situation, uh, unless that math uh, leaves room for Jesus. And because here's the thing, you see the disciples on this occasion, they're just like you and me. They're 100% human, right? There's no divinity. And like the disciples, what we often do is we look at our situation and, and we, we search and, and we rack our brains and we look at life and we look at our circumstances all the time and we do the math and conclude, you know what? It doesn't add up, all right? There's nothing that we can do. My situation is too big. Uh, my, my situation, my circumstances are too great, too difficult. It's much too complicated. And what we do is we look at our circumstances and, and we say that they're extraordinary. And, and what we do at the same time is we limit our God and we say that he's ordinary. But things change with Jesus. I mean, with Jesus, the math is always different. Because when Jesus is involved, it's always plus one. I mean, you've got to factor in Jesus. I mean, it's not just five loaves of bread and two fish. It's five loaves of bread plus two fish plus one extraordinary God. And and as I read this story, I mean, I just wonder in my heart, I mean, if Jesus, you know, was just begging for them to count plus one, to factor in Jesus, because you see, if you've got Jesus, then it really doesn't matter what the number is that you count to. I mean, take your marriage, for example. Um, And if you've got a marriage that that is failing right now, let's not forget. 
uh, that no matter the situation, I mean, it, only takes, it always takes two people, but if you've given up on your marriage because of the circumstances, because of what's going on, and you would say they're too great, can I just ask you something today? Are you factoring in the plus one? I mean, are you factoring in Jesus? Because when you think about it, a failing marriage plus Jesus it changes things. I mean, everything changes. I mean, maybe, maybe you find yourself in a terrible financial storm right now, and when you think back over the past few years, you think about some unwise purchases. You couldn't call them that then, but maybe you would do that today, and, and you've got growing debt and maybe a lost job or two along the way. I mean, you've done the math. I mean, you've seen the budget, and the numbers don't add up, but can I ask you this today? Are you factoring in the plus one? I mean, it might be a challenging situation, but factoring in Jesus changes everything. I mean, if you've got a frightening health situation right now and you've tried everything, have you factored in Jesus yet? I mean, are you counting plus one? Or maybe you're here today and the one thing that you can't get off your mind is your past and it's the weight of a number of things that are really mounting against you, and you can't seem to put the past behind, and you can't ever imagine getting another shot, a fresh start in life. Do you have any idea what happens when you start factoring Jesus into the equation? I'm with the odds stacked against these people. Five loaves of bread, two fish, and 15,000 people. I mean, the disciples had to be thinking, hey, it's not calculus, all right? It doesn't have to be. Five plus two equals seven. We've got a problem, Jesus. But what they didn't realize is that the solution to their problem was standing right there in front of them. Because anything plus Jesus, well, it just changes everything. Look at how this wraps up, starting in verse 18. Jesus said, bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. And then taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people, and they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Hey, there were even leftovers. And the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. And what can we say about something like this today? I would say this, that when life is tough, when you feel like the odds are stacked against you and you're wondering that there is no other way, I would just ask you to reconsider your math, math, uh, to reconsider the way you count. I mean, have you factored in Jesus? Are you making room for him in your life and in your circumstances, surrendering yourself to the work that only he can do because he's no ordinary teacher, he is no ordinary man, and he is no ordinary king? I mean, anything anything in your life, plus Jesus, it changes everything. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you, Lord, uh, that you are an extraordinary God. And as we acknowledge that here today, um, we find confidence in knowing that you know all of our circumstances, Lord, and there are circumstances present in this room right now that we would quickly label as extraordinary. But I pray that you would remind us by the power of the Spirit today that you are a great and extraordinary God and you are capable of overcoming anything. God, would you give us the faith to believe today? 
Would you give us the faith to believe and to trust you for all things, that Jesus wasn't just someone who simply lived and walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, and for those that were able to come around him, that they got to enjoy the benefits of God on this earth then. But I pray that you would help us to see and believe today that we are still enjoying the benefits of your son's life and his death and his new life and the power of your kingdom and the power of your work and what that work can mean for us even today, God, that you are an extraordinary God who loves us and you loved us so much that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die. Father, would you give us the faith to follow you? Would you give us the faith to follow you with that confidence today in anything that we're facing right now? Lord, I want to lift up to those to you in this room right now again who would say, I've got some extraordinary circumstances going on around me right now, whether that has to do with a relationship, whether that has to do with a financial issue or a health issue, whatever that issue may be, Lord. Would you give us the faith to believe and to trust you, to surrender these things over to you and to see that anything plus Jesus changes things? I mean, all things are possible with you, Lord, and give us the faith to believe just that. And as we pray too, I just want to acknowledge that maybe for some of you, you're not at a place in your life right now where you can say, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Can I just ask you to think about the benefits of being able to look at your life and then to add Jesus to it? It changes everything. It changes your hope, change your outlook, the power of forgiveness for you and the hope and the enthusiasm for what's ahead. Our God is available to you. He's made himself available to you through Jesus Christ. And all you need to do is pray and open up your life to him. And if you've never done that before and you feel him drawing you to himself today, you can just simply pray those words wherever you are. Lord, I need you. I need you as my savior. Come into my life and change me. And change me today. God, I thank you. And we thank you uh, for um, the hope that we have in Jesus. Again, that he wasn't just a man that lived 2,000 years ago, but he is a man who is living today and he invites us to follow And God, I pray that we would see the benefits and the power of keeping our eyes focused on him, following him in everything that we do, living like him, living out that same love and with that same hope and that same enthusiasm. It changes everything. And we pray this in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen.